Atamaria, welcome to First Up. It is Ratu, Tuesday, the 25th of October. Call Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, Rishi Sunak is set to assume the role of UK's Prime Minister, so we'll have the latest from London soon. We're going to hear how Rotorua has lost some $17 million in tourism spending in just three months. And if you think the top athletes only load up on animal protein, well, think again. We talk to two Olympians who say a plant-based diet can be just as good. There are so many great plant-based protein sources that you can get sort of breaking away from the general meat and two veg kind of way that a lot of Kiwis are bought up. Yeah, kia ora koutou. welcome to First Up. I trust you uh, enjoyed your long weekend and perhaps waking up feeling just a little fresher. Those three days in a row of not waking up early, they, they make a difference, don't they, early risers? Well, everybody, um, we've r- risen to uh, what looks like to be a new leader of the UK. Rishi Sunak is set to be the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. I'd like to pay tribute to Liz Truss for her dedicated public service to the country. She has led with dignity and grace through a time of great change and under exceptionally difficult circumstances, both at home and abroad. I am humbled and honoured to have the support of my parliamentary colleagues and to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. It is the greatest privilege of my life to be able to serve the party I love and give back to the country I owe so much to. The United Kingdom is a great country, but there is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity, and I will make it my utmost priority to bring our party and our country together, because that is the only way we will overcome the challenges we face and build a better more prosperous future for our children and our grandchildren. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility and I will work day in, day out to deliver for the British people. Oh, very kind. Uh, There he is, uh, Rishi Sunak. For more on that story, I'm joined from London by our correspondent, Ali J. Morena. Ali, he said he loves that party. I do believe it. You could hear the love in his voice, couldn't you? Atamaria, Nathan, you can. Definitely not pre-prepared speech there. <laughs> so tell me, just take us through take us through how the last few days have rolled out. Well, it has been a busy weekend. If, if I mean, it didn't really feel like a, a weekend, really. But just before Friday, your time, I think, Liz Truss resigned. We then heard from the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, um, who came out and laid out how the choosing of the new Conservative Party leader um, would go. I mean, it's only been seven weeks since we went through the last one. But this time, he said, it's all going to be over in a week. By next Friday, we'll have a new Prime Minister. So if you remember last time we had weeks and weeks of these hustings Mm. of MPs casting their votes, candidates being knocked out. This time there was a rule that said any candidate who put themselves forward needed to have the official backing of at least 100 Tory MPs by one o'clock today. Um, And after that, after he announced that, we waited, mainly for candidates to nominate themselves. Uh, And then the speculation about Boris started 
So the first person to nominate themselves was Penny Mordaunt. She declared on Friday. At this point, Boris Johnson was on holiday in the Dominican Republic. It's it's worth noting as well, Parliament is in session at the moment and he is an MP, but he was on holiday. Uh, Conservative MPs came out saying that they'd back him, even though he hadn't declared. And then on Saturday, we find out he's flying back early from his holiday. He arrived here Saturday morning. They released photos of him on the phone looking very tired. Uh, At the same time, MPs are coming out in support of Rishi Sunak. He also hadn't declared. So there was a point on Saturday when uh, there were totals of the numbers of MPs declared for Penny Mordaunt, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. But Penny Mordaunt was the only one who had actually declared she wanted the job at that point. Uh, And then we'll cut forward to yesterday. Rishi Sunak formally declares he's running and that he has the backing then of 102 MPs. And then last night at 9pm after all the front pages of the newspapers have been sent out for Monday. People have made their TV rundowns, the radio shows. Minutes after the ex-Chancellor Nadine Zahawi tweets his support for Boris, Boris says he's not going to run. He (laughs) he releases this this statement. He says he could win the next general election. He does have the support of MPs, but now isn't the right time. So for, for the best thing for the country, he's not going to run. And after that, it was a pretty much a done deal for Rishi. In the end, Penny Mordaunt had the support of 90 MPs. She didn't meet the threshold. Uh, And 2pm today, a couple of hours ago, we found out Rishi Sunak will be the new Prime Minister. That's an amazing thing. See, I thought Penny Mordaunt really captures that sort of I am in charge type of personality. I didn't see it in Liz Truss. I even think with Rishi Sunak, he doesn't sound quite that same as well. So I'm sort of surprised that she didn't get uh, that reach the 100 point uh, threshold. But anyway, uh, when does the official handover happen? And is the the king involved in this? Does, Does Mr. Sunak have to go see the king first? Yes, so it will be, it will be, I mean, I was going to say it will be similar to with Liz Truss, but with the obvious thing that it's the king instead of, instead of the queen, but we don't actually know at the moment when that's going to happen. Um, It's expected the formal handover of power, they call it, will be tomorrow. So at the moment, Liz Truss is still uh, officially prime minister. I was reading too that um, the king is actually in London at the moment, but people are saying that there's so much protocol to go through that it won't happen this evening. I think we'll see um, those photos again. He has to go to the king and ask for permission to form a government, the photos of the handshakes. Um, It will also be interesting to keep an eye on Prime Minister's questions this week, which is Wednesday at midday here and is always very fiery, especially the past couple of weeks it has been. But the Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, has been calling for a general election. He said, and Emily Thornbury as well, um, one of the shadow cabinet was saying 70% of people here want a general election. I'm not sure about those numbers but according to the polls over the past couple of days the conservative party are polling the lowest they ever have so they're the least popular they have ever been especially after that mini budget especially after um, Liz Truss so Rishi Sunak today has apparently told backbenchers that there won't be a general election and with I mean with numbers like that it's unlikely they're going to want to call one early. 
Yeah, it is. Hey, uh, Ali, thank you so much for your time. Um, listeners here in New Zealand, we're going to have more on all the events in London throughout the morning because, as you hear, they are developing rapidly. And uh, Morning Report, of course, will pick that torch up and carry it. Uh, this morning, it's Marnie Dunlop and Corin Dan with you after six. Uh, it is, let's call it 12 and a half past five. Eh? Uh, world leaders have responded with concern over Russia's latest rattling of the nuclear sabre in Ukraine. Over the weekend, Russian officials talked up a theory over the possibility that Ukraine would use a dirty bomb on its own territory. Ukraine's, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky addressed the issue in his nightly video address. When today the Russian Minister of Defence sets up a phone carousel and calls foreign ministers with stories about the so-called dirty nuclear bomb, everyone understands everything well. They understand the source of all the dirty things imaginable in this war. It is Russia that started nuclear blackmail at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. It is the trajectory of Russian missiles that goes, among others, over the Ukrainian nuclear objects. These are the Russian troops who have mined the dam and aggregates at the Kakuvka hydroelectric power plant and are blackmailing with blowing it. It is Russia that uses phosphorus munitions, banned anti-personal mines and the entire range of weapons against civilian infrastructure. Hugo Bachega has more from Kiev. The Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu made the allegation in a flurry of calls with American, British and French defense ministers on Sunday. He said Ukraine was preparing to use a dirty bomb, in other words, a conventional bomb laced with radioactive material. This allegation has been dismissed by Western countries as transparently false. And here in Kiev, the Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba said this allegation was a lie and he said the Russians often accuse others of what they plan themselves. He said this claim was part of Russia's disinformation campaign and this is happening as the Ukrainians are uh, making some gains as they try to recapture the city of Kherson in the south of the country. This is one of the largest Ukrainian cities under Russian occupation and there's been some speculation that Russian forces could be preparing uh, to pull out from parts of the region. The Russian-appointed officials in Kherson are carrying out the evacuation of civilians from the western bank of the city and they have now announced the creation of a militia to defend the city. As they say, Ukrainian forces are preparing a large-scale offensive to recapture Kherson. But earlier today, the Ukrainian intelligence chief Kirill Budanov said that Russia was preparing to defend the city and there were no signs that Russian forces were fleeing. That was the BBC's Hugo Bachega reporting. Good morning you. It is a quarter past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. I'm keen for your feedback this morning and I was thinking of what I was listening to there by Rishi Sunak and, and, and I've heard it a few from things. Political parties, he said it's, it's the, part, the party I love. Should you love a political party? 2101, should you love a political party? Uh, just want to know your reasonings for those. Also, uh, what did you do with your long weekend? Because I think it was uh, A&P show day, of course, uh, in Hawke's Bay, which is something I used to love around Labour weekend. I'd try and sit on every tractor and uh, try and get one of those, um, one of the, the long sort of cow poker things. They were always uh, good to have uh, and do the old spinning around uh, paintings that you could do. So, yeah, 2101, let me know how your weekend went. Uh, well, Hollywood producer and convicted sex offender Harvey Weinstein's 
latest trial is set to begin in Los Angeles. A jury was selected on Friday to hear evidence in the case. The former movie mogul is serving time in prison after a trial in New York for sex crimes. He's currently appealing that sentence. The BBC's Sophie Long has this report. He was convicted and incarcerated in New York. Now, as the man who once ruled Hollywood falls further into the darkness with failing eyesight and rotting teeth, it's those who say they survived and shed light on his abuse that shine and continue the fight for justice. Harvey Weinstein is facing 11 charges in Los Angeles, including four counts of rape alleged to have taken place here in Beverly Hills. The charges carry a sentence of more than 100 years. If he's convicted, he'll almost certainly die in prison. A far cry from the luxury hotels his accusers say he used as his hunting ground. It's been five years since the New York Times published bombshell allegations of systemic sexual abuse by the man even Hollywood royalty referred to as God. The premiere of the film dramatising the investigation coincided with the start of his trial, despite his lawyer's efforts to prevent that. I hope that this film will show how much um, effort and how many people had to be involved in, in the process of um, showing the truth because uh, Harvey seemed to be untouchable. Like, like he used to say that he's the sheriff of this town and nobody can do nothing. We need to remember, we need to keep talking about this because it's something that happens so much and is unfortunate. We need to stop it. I can still see it, the hotel room, the floor plan. But the findings of a survey by Women in Film show that while progress has been made, 69% say they're still experiencing sexual harassment at work in the entertainment industry. What do we want? And there's concern the Me Too movement is losing momentum. When the Me Too movement was really um, taking root in the entertainment industry five years ago, you just felt everybody leaning in. Um, so many people caring about it, putting new policies in place, launching programs, and um, it definitely has, um, you know, there's less of that happening now. The L.A. trial is likely to be less of a spectacle than what we saw in New York. This is, after all, the sequel to a story that the world has already heard. It is, nonetheless, an important opportunity for the women who say they were silenced to be heard and for the legendary Hollywood producer who still protests his innocence to clear his name. That was Sophie Long reporting from Hollywood. I'm going to say... It's a third past five, we'll go there. I'm Nathan Rarere, you are listening to First Up on RNZ National. A new report shows that Rotorua has lost about $17 million in tourism spending over the last three months. So joining us to get to the bottom of this is uh, Felix Damaray from the Local Democracy Reporting Programme. Always a pleasure to get to say kia ora, Felix, how are you? <laughs> kia ora, Nathan, how are you? I'm good. So, um, but yeah. I'm, apparently I'm doing better than the than the local tourism economy. Mm. Can you tell me, you've had a look at this report, what do they conclude were the reasons that this of this fall in tourism spending in Rotorua? Well, basically they're saying that the, the reason um, that Rotorua is not performing as well as some of uh, New Zealand's other tourism centres is basically down to negative perceptions. And a lot of people are drawing the link and indeed, the report does as well um, between negative perceptions and uh, emergency housing in Um So it's pretty interesting, and it does sort of paint a, 
uh, well, I think um, Rotorua NZ have said that it provides an evidence base for things that have been said anecdotally. Mm. And the perception uh, around local authorities there, what, what are they calling for the government to do here? Because I guess they're thinking, you know, perception is such a hard thing for, for if you own a hotel or you own a tourism uh, operation, Felix, it's really hard to change that. Oh, absolutely. It's it's totally crucial. And, and I guess the concern out there is is that international tourists will come back to Rotorua over the summer period. They, they could have a, a, a bad experience. Um, and then they'll go back to their countries and and spread that via word of mouth. Um, so one of the things that um, our new mayor Tanya Tapsell is uh, calling for is uh, some a b- bit of a boost in funding for uh, destination marketing. Um, and some other people have called for that as well. Um, but the government um, I talked to the tourism minister for that story, and he was basically saying, "Well, look, actually, we've given Rotorua quite a lot of money um, through the pandemic and before the pandemic through the provincial growth fund. So, you know, um, maybe we've had our fair share. But on the flip side of that, Rawiri Waititi, the Waiaraki MP, says, "Well, you know, um, Rotorua has done its fair share of the heavy lifting through the pandemic with MIQ and and all that sort of thing." So maybe um, maybe we should have a bit of a, a help out. Surely Stephen Adams is, you know, he's about the most famous Rotorua local at the moment. <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry, any Morrisons out there involved, but he could, he could get a whole lot of tourists from Memphis uh, to try and come over. That, that's an interesting point there about the, the money that's, that's come across. So I guess, that, what, is there much hope at all that there might be able to be more government money, do you think? Oh, I don't know. Based on uh, Stuart Nash's mm. comment, I'm not too sure about that, but you never know. Um, uh, I guess the, the mayor could continue lobbying and there's there's, there's other possibilities through the budget yeah. um, coming up next year, but who knows? How do the, I'm just wondering, Felix, how do the locals feel about, you know, like all the news stories are mainly like, oh, it's full of, you know, these, uh, you know, families being shoved into emergency housing in, in motels. What what does that do to the locals of Rotorua? Is it something that they feel and they talk about a lot? Well, the, those stories are coming from them. You know, there is a bit of an argument out there that says that, um, you know, Basically, the media should not be only telling uh, positive stories about Rotorua. And frankly, I, I mean, I, I work in the media and I see that there are positive stories written about Rotorua. But mm. the thing about this problem here is that um, the only way to address it is to face it head on rather than putting heads in the sand. Um, yeah, so people uh, in the tourism industry are, are really hurting. And, and the only way to address that, as I say, is to... Is to Look into those problems and see what we can do to solve them. Mm, well, I would. Uh, can I? Can I put out a uh, go there just purely, almost for the coffee at Abracadabra? It's very good. Uh, that's one reason, and we'll get many of them on there. Felix, thank you very much for your time and your reporting as well. Felix Demaray there from the local Democracy Reporting Program. <laughs> Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. 2101, best things about Rotorua. There's lots, actually. It's great. Let's have a look at this day that we call the 25th of October. A couple of important birthdays on this day. In 1881... 
Pablo Picasso was born. Also born on this day, 1941 in Melbourne, went on to have an incredible life, Helen Reddy. Uh, born this day in 1941. If we have a look at uh, significant birthdays, sticking with Helen Reddy, we're going to go with the voices uh, being important. Katy Perry turns 38 today. She was actually born Catherine Hudson, uh, grew up in one of the uh, mega church families singing. That's where she got her uh, performance, uh, well, confidence uh, to be on stage performing. And Nancy Cartwright, who was the voice of Bart Simpson, Nelson Muntz, and Ralph Wiggum uh, from uh, The Simpsons, of course, turned 65 years old today. Two things went on on sale today. One of them, uh, I'm quite surprised of the order of this. The first domestic microwave oven went on sale in 1955, which was five years earlier than the first mass-produced electronic wristwatch, which was Belova's Accutron, by the way, if you want to have a look for it there. That went on sale in 1960. So there you are, a five-year head start for microwaves over electronic wristwatches. Uh, on this day, very important in arts and culture. In 1978, the movie Halloween came out. John Carpenter came up with that one and wrote that little scary bit of music. Jamie Lee Curtis debuted in her film, uh, well, that was the first film she was in that was made for $300,000 because no big studios wanted to touch it. They went, oh, no one wants to see this. The movie made $65 million in its initial release, so apparently people did. And on this day, 1920, Alexander I, the King of Greece, died at the age of 27. He got blood poisoning after being bitten by a pet monkey. So he was walking the palace grounds uh, with a um, when a pet Barbary monkey uh, belonging to a steward of the palace's grapevines began, began fighting with his dog. He's trying to separate them, two of them, a cat bit him, and uh, he died of blood poisoning. And that is uh, the day of our life that we call the 25th of October. Joining us now from our business team is Anan Zaki. Uh, kia ora Anan, how are you? Morena, very well, thank you. Okay, uh, lots happening on the markets even though we had a long weekend there. What is the team focusing on this morning? Well, uh, power companies, uh, you know, they've been in the news recently. Uh, they're making bigger profits uh, thanks to full hydro lakes. Uh, but uh, we're having a shift to zero carbon emissions. So that means the extra money is being invested into renewable energy development. So you may have heard recently that, uh, you know, power companies, they made the big profits, uh, which did include one-offs. Uh, you know, the four big generator retailers made annual profits of more than one and a half billion. Uh, like I said, there were one-off factors behind that. Um, so last week we had Mercury Energy. They revised up its full-year uh, underlying profit guidance thanks to a big boost in retail business and full hydrolakes. So the full hydrolakes are really helping them. And we had Meridian's uh, annual shareholders meeting, and they said... Uh, it will be uh, actually increased renewable energy, which will push prices down. So the bigger profits at the moment are really going to uh, renewable projects because of these zero carbon goals. Hmm. That's what we're uh, being uh, told. Now, we spoke to an analyst because, you know, excessive profits, it's always a big headline grabber. Uh, and we spoke to a guy called Andrew Harvey Green from Forsyth Bar uh, and asked him about whether the profits are excessive or not. And... He says, uh, no, they aren't, uh, and he says the cost of generation has actually been a bit cheaper uh, recently because of those full lakes, and uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, the money is going to these big projects. We have Meridian, Contact, and Genesis, uh, you know, among, uh, are the, among the names, uh, announcing all big renewable projects, solar especially. So, um, well, there you go. No, uh, no to big profits, uh, yay to renewable energy. 
I'm okay with that one. I'm thinking you've got to at some stage, actually. You need to. So at least that one is, is, is promising, I would guess. Now, this is interesting. The world's biggest car maker reportedly rebooting an EV project. The other thing is, what, can they just stop coming up with weird names for their cars? Like Volvo's one, they go, no, 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 this is called a Polestar 2. It's like, just call it a Lincoln Volvo. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> carry on. Uh, rebooting EVs. What, what? Who is this? What is this? Yeah, so Toyota, of course, biggest car maker in the world. They've been actually largely absent from the electric car scene, haven't they? They've been a market leader in the hybrid sector. We've got the Prius uh, and others uh, there, but uh, full battery electrics, uh, not so much. But uh, we've had an interesting report uh, overnight from Reuters, and they say that Toyota is considering a reboot of its uh, complete reboot of its electric car strategy to better compete uh, in this really booming market, which has been very slow to enter, and it's being reported that the company, um, you know, which uh, the company has actually halted some work on its existing EV projects to focus on this reboot, and it would be a really big shift for the company if adopted. Uh, Toyota recently announced a plan to better compete with the likes of Tesla. So uh, Reuters say they've set up a working group uh, uh, to do this. Uh, now, Toyota refused to confirm this to Reuters, but uh, uh, Toyota did have an electric uh, RAV4, which it discontinued in 2014, and they even had a stake in Tesla uh, at one time, but sold that in 2017. So hopefully, if they do go ahead with this... Uh, you know, it will push prices down in the EV market and make it more accessible. Yeah, I think once those brands uh, realise that that's where the money is, uh, it does tend to drop the price a bit on it, doesn't it? And I think, you know, I saw a great statement last week. Remember, electric vehicles, they're not here to save the planet, they're here to save the motor industry. Uh, so I'm sure they'll go to it. <laughs> and Anne, thank you very much for your time. You can hear more uh, from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10.27. So if you're going out with your New Zealand dollar after the long weekend, this is what you can trade at. Here we go, traders. You ready? Here we go. 56.85 US cents, 90.02 Australian cents, 58.01 Euro cents, 50.30 British pence, 4.15 yuan, and 84.61 Japanese yen. We head towards 6 o'clock now. New Zealand, of course, had a sensational first up win over Australia at the T20 Cricket World Cup over the weekend. Just crushed them. Now, the Black Caps prepared for the World Cup with a seven-match tri-series against Pakistan and Bangladesh, which was at Hagley Oval a couple of weeks back there. However, the day before that first tri-series match in Christchurch, it snowed. It was the earliest start to a summer season in the history of New Zealand cricket, and as well as an extra jersey and a bigger workload for the players. It meant that ground, sm- ground staff had to make some big changes to how they prepared the pitch. So I got to speak uh, with the team leader, Ash Head, and I started by asking, you know, about atmospheric things. Like, does the ball do weird things in the air when it's cold? I guess it does. Like, you get the, the dew factor when it's a bit cold. So um, if there's dew sort of forming on the ground and, and on the pitch, the ball will behave slightly different. You, you know, like your thing is, right, I'm going to prepare this for this. In the yep. build-up to it, you're having a look. What sort of temperature range did you get in Christchurch over those eight days beforehand, and did that make you change your plans? Um, we kind of planned in advance that um, we were expecting a big southerly front to come through just before the start of the, the Tri-Series. So uh, we had the pitch ready pretty much three or four days out from the first game because we knew what was coming. So, But the temperature ranges were probably, you know, Leading into it, we're probably not much far over 10 degrees, which is 
not normal really for preparing a pitch for for us most of the summer. Hey, you know, you ended up having a lot of games on them. How, how do you think it went? Uh, yeah, it was pretty good. We we used two pitches for the for the seven games, so um, we split them between four games on one and three games on the other. So. I think for the time of year, um, the pitches performed pretty well and there's some, some good cricket played. Okay. What happens, though, is the bosses go, ooh, this is good. We could have cricket even earlier. What do you think? Could we go earlier than this? I reckon it's possible, depending on the weather. Um, yeah, it, it does push the season a bit longer and it puts pressure on um, you know, the amount of pitches that we have available throughout the summer. So, I mean, if you started early, you're either going to have to finish earlier or have a bit of a gap in the middle where you, you sort of can't play cricket. But um, I don't, I don't, nothing's impossible. Yeah. Ash, I was just thinking about your job, and we were talking in the office before about, like, I flattered with the chef for two years. He only cooked twice because he just didn't want to look at food again when he did it. Your lawn, yeah. Your lawns at home, what's the state of them? Uh, terrible. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you don't you don't just go. Oh, I might just sneak the heavy roller home and do the front lawn. No, no, no. I mean, I guess like you you have all the good intentions of having a nice lawn at home, but the amount of hours and time you spend at work looking after it sometimes it's the last thing you really want to do when you get home is look after your own lawn. Okay, which leads me to my next one then. When you go to people's houses, does the, the you know does the lawn master of the house come up and go, hey, yeah, I've got this little yellow spot over there. What, what do you reckon that is? Like, do you, do you get asked for lawn advice a lot? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, <laughs> even yesterday I was getting phone calls and text messages from a few mates asking about some stuff for their lawns. So, yeah, <laughs> it definitely happens all the time. What is it normally? What's the thing that's normally wrong? Is it like you just got to... Water it. Um, yeah, pretty much. Water and chuck some fertiliser on it is basically it. Yep. What happened to prickles in lawns? What, hap- what happens to? Or what, what, what happened to them? Because when I was a kid, like stubbing my toe and getting a prickle in my, in my big toe, they were they were summer, and I, don't, I never hear of people with prickles now. Is that just? Yeah. Does that grass not exist anymore? Oh, I'm sure it does. I think um, I don't know. I guess people sort of look after their lawns perhaps a little bit better than. Back in the day, where you just kind of let it go, and yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree. I remember prickles in the lawns when I was a kid, but yeah, it's not something you hear of a lot these days. <laughs> and as well, luckily, you know, the black caps weren't playing in bare feet, so there was there was yep. nothing like a, a prickle there as well. You had the best seat in the house, so we'll just ask you for some just some advanced scouting there. What do you reckon, Lockie Ferguson, uh, Adam Milne, or Blair Tickner? You only get to pick one here. For the super mm-hmm. quick, these are the super quicks of New Zealand fast bowling. Who are you taking? Ooh, I did watch Lockie doing some sort of fitness training for um, the World Cup, and he looked pretty sharp on his last day before they left. Um, and yeah, Melny looked pretty good as well. So out of those two, I'd probably yeah, I'd probably take Lockie. Well, you're taking Team Ferg. All right, there yep. we go. Yep. That's what we're going yep. with. And, yep. um, and, and also there, just give us uh, your optimism for New Zealand in, in the T20 World Cup from what you've seen. Um, I think they'll go pretty well. I think we've got some, some good good batters, good bowlers, and I think with the fielding, um, we're a pretty sharp side in the field as well. And I think having played, you know, the, these, this tri-series at Hagley, it's kind of sets us up for playing on those big grounds in Australia as well. Great, please. The professionals of Morning Reporter here after six from the northern end. It's Corin Dan to open the bowling. Kilda Corin. Don't start me on cricket. 
I just, I, I, you, you can hear it in Vicky. You can hear it in Vicky. <laughs> it must be electric in the uh, in the Wellington offices this morning. Oh yeah. No, that was uh, if you're talking cricket. What a was belting! Cr- greatest game by New Zealand I think I've ever seen. Wow! It just was just so good. I wasn't expecting. Were you expecting? I wasn't expecting. No, not that. No. no. Uh, we will cover that. We'll cover a lot of sport this morning, actually, very quickly on that note. Netball, too, so they're not so good. That was disappointing. The rugby, which was good, and obviously the cricket, so we'll have all that covered. Mm. Uh, but it is UK politics, obviously. Rishi Sunak set to become Prime Minister. That'll be formally happening tomorrow, but he's already spoken. It's already a done deal. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Uh, we will also talk about China and the... Um, President Xi's uh, firm, well, new grip on power there and what that might mean uh, for New Zealand. Grant Robertson is in for the Prime Minister this morning. She's off on her way to Antarctica today, I think. Yeah. Uh, so he's in doing the media rounds today. We'll talk to him about the events in the UK, in China, and also to the pressure that is clearly Sadly, uh, going on our health sector in particular, it seems the ED department's really struggling at the moment. Another very tragic case over the weekend coming to light about a four-year-old boy who died. Mm. Um, Obviously, we don't know the circumstances and the exact details of that, but obviously there is a lot of concern about the pressure that is on our health system at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you uh, very much, Corinne and Marnie, with you after six. Well, the National Party is planning to revive Bill English's social investment agenda, saying that it will help in identifying the most effective social programs and deliver more bang for our taxpayers' bucks. Deputy Leader Nicola Willis announced the policy at Victoria University School of Government last week, saying it would set better public service targets to aim towards measurable goals, which ministers would then be held to account for. But it's not being universally welcomed. Uh, the government's calling it un- another unfunded promise, and other commenters um, say that programs whose benefits aren't easily measured will miss out. So I spoke with Nicola Willis to, uh, to um, get her to explain the social investment plans. Well, social investment is an answer to that question, I think, New Zealanders of all political persuasions have asked themselves at one point, which is, how do we get better results from government policy for the people most in need, those people most likely to become dependent on the state and to face a lot of disadvantage? And social investment does a few things. The first is, it says, let's do earlier intervention. Second, let's use data and evidence to do the interventions we know are most likely to be successful. Third, let's be rigorous about targets for outcomes and making sure we're evaluating where we're at. Fourth, let's be really prepared to use community organisations and non-government organisations to do things where it works. And finally, let's judge our investment over the long term, not just what it does tomorrow, but what it does for a person's life. Because if we can change someone's life for the better, those are investments worth making. So, So it comes across as, let's just say I'm a company or something and I've done very well, Here's my tax bill. Now, can I say no, rather than paying that tax bill, I'm going to put it into something that would be a social investment um, no. thing? Right. No, absolutely not. Okay, so and the they're, first they're instance, what tax. we're talking about is absolutely this yeah. is about government spending. So our expectation is that the social investment approach could be taken across education, across health, across welfare, where we are seeing that we're not getting better enough results. Uh, we can intervene to see if a social investment approach on a particular program might work. We've also proposed a social investment fund. We've been clear the government will fund that fund. We will put money in in every budget, uh, and we want that fund to be up and running and successful. So how much money goes into that budget then from the government? 
We're going to announce that next year uh, because what we want to do is assess the fiscal and economic conditions that we see next year when we're putting together our fiscal plan before we make that announcement. It's really important to me that we're able to uh, get to a place where we're investing in things like the Social Investment Fund, providing uh, prudent tax reduction and providing the increases to health and education funding and other areas that New Zealanders will expect. And as you know, the economic situation has been deteriorating rapidly. So we want to assess where things are at next year before announcing the number. But don't we already have privatised school and and health? I mean, we've got private hospitals. We've got private schools already. We already uh, in New Zealand spend around six to seven billion dollars each year on contracts with private organisations and community organisations providing uh, services to New Zealanders. You're right, that is something that we do in a big way. Social investment is agnostic about who does it. It could actually be a government-run program. Uh, the point is, it's very focused on results. Uh, So while um, I'm aware that um, my political opponents have tried to dismiss this as simply about using the private sector, that is just wrong. That's a very simplistic way of looking at this. This is about getting better results for the New Zealanders who most need support and making sure that we get past this frustrating thing of putting money into things with good intentions but not actually changing people's lives out the other end. Yeah. I mean, look, look I'm, I'm not uh, one of your political opponents in the House. I'm just trying to make sense of this. And my thing is I'm going like, I, I just, how are these wealthy people going to just part with money? Because wealthy people are wealthy because they don't just part with money. Well, Nathan, that's completely secondary to what social investment is. So the first thing is, We want to take the social investment approach about using evidence and data and early intervention across government. The second thing is we want to set up a social investment fund, which will be government funded. Uh, What I have said is if that fund was extremely successful, which, let's be frank, could take a few years to uh, demonstrate, then it could get to the point where some of the non-government organisations who have been working with it are prepared to pitch in themselves. Uh, Now, that's not a requirement for it to be successful. Ultimately, for it to be successful, it needs to be picking the right programs, investing in them, where they're working, scaling them up. It's about innovation and doing things that work. Okay. So, sorry, just to help me be clear. So, they would come and you would say, these are the investments that you could invest in, or someone would say, hey, I would like to invest in my own thing over here and like who polices that kind of stuff like how does that work well to give you an example of something that's worked in the past with a social investment approach national invested in a program warm up the homes of families whose children had rheumatic fever that program was found to be successful uh, kids in the program hospitalized less Uh, They went to school more regularly. Their parents took fewer benefits. It was scaled up to a broader group of families um, whose kids were in the hospital system. And it was again found to be successful and then scaled up again. So I can envisage a situation where the government proves that a new program is successful. It's reaching people in need. It's changing their lives for the better. And other people might want to get on board with that. Okay, all right. I'm sure we'll talk about it more to come, but we'll find out ne- next year. You said we'll find out about the sort of budget that you'd want to put into it. Let's let's get to something else. Let's go to Hamilton. Residents there meeting police and political leaders today uh, to discuss rising crime. What would a social investment approach take to to those problems being experienced in that city, perhaps? 
So I think there's two things. When it comes to rising crime, the critical thing is we need our police to be tooled up. We need police uh, with the tools they need to address rising crime in the community. And in uh, Hamilton, I'm advised that there have been emerging gang issues, and we think the proposed additional powers uh, for police to use against gangs that National has proposed would be very useful. A, a second issue I'm told uh, is creating issues in Hamilton is the sheer number of people living uh, in emergency housing, uh, many of whom I'm sure are law-abiding, but some of whom have become engaged with criminal activity and are threatening others. And so our, our question is this. Does it make sense to be spending a million dollars a day across the country putting people up and pay-by-night emergency motels, is that making the difference we would hope for those people? My answer is no. A social investment approach would say, well, how could we be using that funding better to get a better result for those people? Could we be using that funding to say to some community groups, look, if you can get some people housed for a, a long in the long term, you know, for six months, for 12 months, if you can demonstrate that those people are doing better, then we will fund you for that because that is going to change their lives for the better and it will be better for our community too. Okay. Um, Gaurav Sharma has uh, left Labour, so that sparked the, a by-election there in Hamilton West. Um, so I'm wondering, who will National stand as the candidate? And I guess, you know, we've just been speaking about crime there in the city. Is crime going to be a defining issue in that by-election? Well, I think it will be a big issue. From what I understand, that's one of the things really concerning people in Hamilton, as is the cost of living, as is the deterioration in health services and a sense that across the board things are going backwards. We kicked off our candidate selection process this weekend um, and we aim to get that up, wrapped up pretty quickly. Obviously, we need to make sure we've got time to do thorough checks and a thorough appraisal of those putting themselves forward the selection, but ultimately the members of the National Party in Hamilton West will choose their candidate. Um, I'm sure we'll have someone fantastic to put forward. It's going to be a tough race, that one. Uh, Labor has a big majority in Hamilton West, several thousand votes, and they won the party vote by a long mile at the last election. Uh, but we will be absolutely putting our best foot forward because we think the people of Hamilton deserve National Party representation. Let's talk about something finally uh, quite different here. Labour list MP Soraya Peke Mason sworn in, so now women have an equal share of seats in Parliament for the first time. This is history, you're part of this. How does it feel to be a part of that? Yeah, I think it's fantastic and so um, special for New Zealand, the country uh, and the world that first gave women the vote. Um, I want to welcome my new colleague to Parliament and it does feel great to be in a Parliament uh, where women a half of it, and I think we've had a big impact uh, over the past few decades, and I'm really pleased that my daughters are growing up in a country uh, where women are so obviously well represented in public life, as it should be. Nicola Willis there, listening to First Up on RNZ National, with me Nathan Rarere, powerhouse Olympic athletes Brooke Donoghue and Luca Jones have teamed up with performance sport nutritionist Crystal Dunche Moy to create a book that demonstrates how you can get all the fuel your body needs from plants, even as an elite athlete. Matthew Tunison reports. Like 
Women need twice as much iron as men. So, eat lean beef and lamb three to four times a week. Feel twice as good. Champion cyclist Sarah Ulmer there with the Olympic rower twins Caroline and Georgina Evers-Swindell in the long-running advertising campaign for locally produced beef and lamb. But Olympic rower Brooke Donahue and canoe slalom silver medalist Luca Jones have set out to show how you can have a meat-free diet and still be a top athlete. Donahue says she was vegetarian back in high school but became a bit deficient in iron so resumed eating meat. She gave it another go a few years later, this time with more information and advice. Yeah, I've just never really liked meat, to be honest, like the taste and the texture, like even growing up on a farm. Um, obviously, I'm pretty aware of where meat comes from and that kind of thing, but just, yeah, never really enjoyed it. And then I've done a bit of study and sustainability and I guess more things added up to, <laughs> I guess, wanted to eat this way. Alongside her nutritionist, she managed to tailor a diet that enabled her to stay at the top of her game. So I'm a um, power endurance athlete, so we spend... On average, like 20 hours training a week, which is all pretty intense. A lot of long endurance stuff as well as that, you know, powerful and the longer pieces like we do racing, like a races could be around seven on a minute. And it's just really important to have like a good balance of carbs and protein, um, which I think is where the plant-based diet and what we're trying to get across in the book is that there are so many great plant-based protein sources that you can get sort of breaking away from the general meat and two veg kind of way that a lot of kiwis are bought up. (laughs) Included in the book are a number of delicious looking plant-based recipes that she and Luca came up with themselves. So we've taste tested them all and experimented to get them the way we want them. You're bloody good cooks. Is that that's a that's a (laughs) side passion is it? Yeah no we've definitely just sort of picked up the skills as we've been going. I definitely wouldn't claim to be a good cook in any way but it's awesome to have this yeah book full of food that I think is delicious. The book was co-authored by performance nutritionist Crystal Dunshay-Moy, who's been working with both Luca and Brooke for years. Oh, one of the good things of a plant-based diet, and what I really, really like, is that there's so many benefits to it. It's, it's much high, higher in fibre. It can be really, really be- beneficial for your gut microbiome. And your gut microbiome, that is your, your gut flora, is related to mood, it's related to well-being. She says more and more athletes are turning to plant-based diets or at least reducing their meat consumption. If you look at Brooke, Brooke is an endurance athlete and therefore it's really, really important that she does eat enough calories for the work she is doing. And as she is a rowing endurance athlete, there is a huge amount of calories required. If you take a food group out, for example, meat, you have to make sure that you replace that, so therefore you're not deficient on those calories. If you then look at Luca, who is a power athlete, it's really important that there is protein at regular intervals in her diet, and based on her weight, it's a certain amount of protein. And if you have that protein from plant-based foods, you just have to be a little bit more thoughtful how you do it. She says if you do go veggie, it's important to monitor things like iron and B12. Brooke says there's been no deterioration to her performance as an athlete. Before, I guess, um, going plant-based, there's not a lot of information out there, and that's kind of stemmed why we've created this book, to show people that it's possible. And all the same principles apply that if you, you know, eat meat or don't eat meat, and... I guess, yeah, being an elite athlete, we had to do things like food diaries and stuff and compare that to the training that I'm doing just to make sure that I am eating enough for 
that work that's been done and yeah definitely to no detriment and yeah I would even say that with the extra information and like looking into a bit more like it's it's helped me far more than if I was a bit more complacent about it all. The book is called Sustain Plant-Based Food for Active People and it's in stores now. Mine's called Pies, where can I get them? Uh, Morning Report is next with Marnie and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Have yourselves a wonderful day. Take the podcast with you anywhere. Otherwise, we'll be back in your ears. Ah, Paul.